Welcome to the Beautiful Illusions Podcast, where two friends, Jeff and Darren, ponder the intersection of reality, consciousness, and culture. These conversations comprise an ongoing attempt to construct meaning by exploring art and science, enriching our understanding of the context underpinning our current moment in time, and imagining possible futures for human civilization. Of course, we don't claim any special knowledge, expertise, or insight into any of these topics. We just enjoy learning, thinking, and talking about big ideas, deep questions, and the beautiful illusion that is the subjective human experience. In today's episode, Lying About Santa, Naughty or Nice, Jeff and I talk about the somewhat contentious issue of lying to kids about Santa Claus. Why do we do it, and what are some possible impacts that encouraging belief in fiction as fact might have on both individuals and the larger culture? We discuss ways adults view the world and relate to kids, the changing nature of cultural traditions, and how we might handle the Santa story in a different way. Stick around after the main show for a special interview with our first ever guest, my daughter Leah, who shares some of her thoughts about Santa Claus. A quick note about the audio in this episode. Due to COVID, this conversation was recorded in a garage on a brisk 40-degree November Sunday, so there's a bit of natural reverb along with the buzz of propane heaters and leaf blowers audible in the background. Like so many things over the last nine months, it's not optimal, but we make the best of a challenging situation, and the cleaned-up audio is certainly listenable, if not quite up to our usual standards. As always, a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference can be found on our website, beautifulillusions.org. And now, for today's episode, Lying About Santa, Naughty or Nice. All right, so I want to be clear about the fact that I love Christmas, but there are a few things that I have issues with. And more than anything else recently is this elf on the shelf. So have you seen this? I mean, it's been around for a couple of years. Yeah, my wife has thought about getting it for our children, and I'm, I'm pretty reluctant. All right. So one of the issues I've always had with the Santa Claus story, and it's in the, uh, I think Santa Claus is coming to town uh, Christmas Carol, is the line about how he sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake and he knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake, which is kind of funny because if you're being good for goodness sake, then we don't need the threat of Santa Claus, right? We'd just be good because it's good to be good. But anyway, regardless, this idea that like we're always being watched by this, um, person who lives in the North Pole with his magical reindeer and and he flies around the world and he brings us presents. And if you're being bad, you're just not going to be able to participate in this event at all. Right. And this is kind of the story we perpetuate if we celebrate Christmas, whether we do it from the you know religious perspective or what I like to think of as uh, secular American Christmas. Um, you know, this Santa story is basically a lie. I mean, all the adults know that Santa is not watching the kids. And we also pretty much know that regardless of whether or not they're bad or good, they're going to pretty much get the gifts because we go crazy for a month trying to buy things, right? So Elf on the Shelf to me is like the ultimate extension of this surveillance Santa concept where now you've got this little helper elf and he watches the kids like from their bedroom i think or their house at least and then he flies back to the north pole every night to report back to santa i think you put him in a different spot every day yes and then like the kids wake up and he's there in the different spot watching them is that yeah yeah well because before i quit facebook it was already starting on social media like and that was four years ago this whole subculture of adults being stressed out or 
trying to outdo each other for where the elf on the shelf actually goes. You know, it's like, here's the elf a shelf in the toilet. And now he's drinking a glass of wine. And the idea is that every day this elf, I think you get to name it, and then it goes back to the North Pole and tells Santa if the kids were good or not. And then that's why the next day he's in a different spot because, and this is supposed to be fun for kids because they find it every day and you're really the one moving it. And it seems like a thing that a lot of parents seem to be stressed out about. Uh, To me, the piece of it that I personally have an issue with is I just don't like the idea of telling kids that something is watching you and that's why you need to be good. And then it's going to fly back to the North Pole. So like, again, promoting this whole magical realism concept where you're trying to get kids to believe in something that you know is a fiction and you're trying to get them to believe in it on purpose, knowing full well that at some point in the future, they're going to have to be disabused of this notion, right? And so like this idea to me of living fiction as if it were real, instead of engaging with fiction as actually being fantasy or made up, And the lying really just rubs me the wrong way. So your kids uh, are already past this age. Your kids know that Santa Claus is not real, and they figured this out. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, so I'm still in the heat of this myth. And I was hiking a couple weeks ago with my seven-year-old, and we had uh, moved a a distance away from my four-year-old and my wife. And for some reason, my seven-year-old, Artie, he says to me, he says, So, Dad... I've been thinking whether Santa's real or not. He didn't ask it as a question, which was very, it was a weight off of my back because I didn't have to come out and answer this. And I said, well, uh, what do you think? So I I turned it into a, um, you know, a critical thinking activity maybe. And he's like, well, I'm not sure. I've been kind of like thinking about it. Like why, why might I think he's real and why might I think he's fake? And I'm like, all right, so what are the reasons why he might be real? And he's like, well... You know, the cookies are there, and they get eaten, and the milk, the milk gets drank, and, uh, and we get the presents. And then I was like, all right, well, and why might he be fake? And then there's just this litany of, like, uh, reasons why he's obviously not real. It was just like, well, he can't go to everybody's house in one night, and uh, the reindeer don't fly, and uh, he lives in the North Pole. Nobody lives in the North Pole. It's like all the things that are there, but I... I held back from, like, saying officially. I, I went with the question, I believe it was like, um, do you think it's fun to believe that he's real for now? And he said, yeah. And then he thought for a while. We hiked along. He, he said, Dad, it's kind of like Santa Claus is like the god of Christmas. So he's kind of getting this whole concept. So do you think in that moment I should have been like, no, Artie, he's not real? Well, it's really hard, right? It's like this question that if you celebrate Christmas and Santa's a part of it that like every parent struggles with because kids will ask, right? And, and I personally have this, it's like part of my philosophy of who I am. You know, we're both teachers. Um, it's something I carried into the classroom with me and it's something I try to do with my own kids. And it's basically this principle that I'm never gonna lie to kids. I don't wanna lie to them. I want them to know that if they have a question and they ask me, I'm going to be truthful with them. Now, that doesn't mean that, like, I'm going to sit the kids down, my, my own kids or the kids in school, and just, like, unvarnished reality. Here it is, the story of the world. And that doesn't also mean that I'm going to answer every question with every possible detail. You know, like, there's certain things that are age-appropriate. You know, my kids now, as you know, um, my daughter, Leah, she's 14, and, you know, Joey's just 12. And at this point, they do not believe in Santa anymore. But every time I got that question, I essentially handled it similar to kind of what you did, where I would never confirm, but I would never deny either. 
And I had a lot of guilt. I wrote the Santa note one time. And I remember, you know, I, I think it was Christmas Eve. Um, you know, I'd had a few drinks. I was feeling good. And I don't remember what I wrote on the note. But I remember even thinking I was being snarky as Santa while I was writing the note. So it wasn't, you know, like full on. Uh, and then I ate the cookie. And, and I remember Leah getting up the next morning and finding the note and then immediately taking it over to the whiteboard in the kitchen and comparing the handwriting on the note to the handwriting on the board. And I can't remember at that point if she asked me, was this you who wrote the note or not? And I felt guilty about it, though. And, you know, ever since then, I've really just kind of been pushing this, you know, what do you think? What evidence do you have? You know, kind of thing, because I remember when I was growing up and, you know, I was raised Catholic. So we always celebrated Christmas as like a religious holiday, although the religion wasn't really a big part of it. But my mother would always say things like, if you don't believe, then you're not going to get anything. And that was clearly not true. And we got the presents every year, no matter what. And they said from Santa on them. And it was clearly my mom's handwriting. And then Christmas Eve, my mother would always be like, if you don't go to bed, Santa's going to skip over the house. But really, it was because my dad needed to go to my grandmother's and get all the gifts and bring them back. And we knew this. And she didn't want to tell us. And I just didn't understand why we all needed to perpetuate this myth. And I don't really understand it now, why we need to carry on this giant story and pretend like it's real, where we don't really do that with a lot of other stories. We do it maybe with like the Easter Bunny and the Tooth Fairy and stuff like that, which I also don't really agree with. But, you know, it's not like we do it with everything that we know is, is fantasy, right? We, we don't pretend that every single book we read to the kids is like real life. So why do we do it with this, do you think? I have a similar but slightly different upbringing than you because um, I'm half Jewish and my mother is actually was full Jewish, was bat mitzvahs and everything. So Christmas wasn't the full on. I don't recall my mother ever using Santa Claus as a uh, behavioral threat. I don't recall ever really thinking that like the songs telling me that he's watching me were real. Our Christmas was interesting. We used to celebrate Hanukkah, which which almost always takes place before Christmas. And, you know, I was half Jewish, so we would, uh, I'd be getting presents before Christmas even happened. And we what, what we did, because I was half Jewish, is that we'd do every other night was a gift, because it's eight nights, and usually you get a, a gift a night if you're, like, full Jewish, but I'm half Jewish, so we do four nights. And then my parents eventually, at a certain point, became practical for them. I kind of appreciate the way my parents did this, because we celebrated Christmas in Pennsylvania at my grandmother's house on the Christian side, my dad's mother. Sometimes we'd put up a fake tree in Connecticut in our house, but most of the time, all the stuff was there. My dad didn't even have to decorate. He just went through and we lit this little menorah and that's all he had to deal with. And then eventually they started giving us the big gifts for Hanukkah so they didn't have to transport them to Pennsylvania. So the Nintendo came for Hanukkah (laughs) and then the socks came for Christmas and like everything that grandma got me. So I don't even know like how fully I bought into the Christmas myth, but I do know like what the stake in the heart. I think I was rather old for this to be the final death knell of Santa Claus as a myth. I found my first CD player in my parents' closet. Maybe I just wasn't as curious. I just found it sitting there. So I must have been like 11 or 12 because CD players like in our lifetime, probably around middle school. So I was a little bit later in in on this whole uh, gig. And I found it, and then it was wrapped, and it said, from Santa. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's officially not true. But I, don't, I just maybe wasn't into it. I, I think, I mean, like, back to your question, it becomes interesting. Like, so how does this affect our brains as children as we get into this? Like, what happens 
to these younger kids that are being told these lies and then suddenly realizing, holy cow, these people were lying to me. Yeah. What else are they lying to me about? Yes, this is kind of my thing with the lying to kids in general is that at some point they get older and they realize it. And, and you know, my experience as a high school teacher all these years dealing with teenagers is that you cannot be an effective high school teacher if the kids think you're lying. It just doesn't work. I mean, teenagers, they know. I always feel like they know. If I'm not being honest with them, then there's no basis for them to trust me. And for the most part, most of them have been lied to at some point by an adult. And they're not going to just trust you right away. You know, they, uh, they're much more trusting of each other, as a matter of fact, at that age than they are of, of adults. And so I kind of learned that. You know, the, the funny thing in your story is that, you know, to go back to my mom, I don't think she ever threatened us really seriously with the idea that, you know, Santa's watching you and, or maybe she did I, when we were really young. I don't know if she did. Like, I don't know that it worked that effectively, but, um, and, and the funny thing about my mom is my mom is not Catholic. My mom, you know, we always joke. It's like, she's culturally Jewish. She was raised in a Jewish family, but she was not bat mitzvah. And so there's no Jewish religious tradition in my family, but we did light the menorah because my grandmother, you know, would do that. And she would give us Hanukkah presents instead of Christmas presents. And I just really didn't understand as I got older. And, you know, this kind of parallels my experience being raised Catholic and going to church, but that's a whole other episode, (laughs) I think, uh, in the future, maybe we could tell those stories. But I agree with you that You know, I wonder, does encouraging young people to believe in fantasy as if it were reality have any impact on our collective cultural ability to see reality for what it is? You know, is there a downside to this belief in magic and does it connect to magical thinking as a logical fallacy? And does purposely lying to young people have a negative impact? And again, I don't really think, I don't want to implicate adults here in that we're trying to do harm. I've certainly been a part of the Santa conspiracy myself. Uh, You know, I might have not been as full-throated in my support, but I certainly wasn't, you know, out there saying, Santa's not real and my kids can't possibly be exposed to this fraud. You know, like I wasn't doing that either. And I don't want to imply that people are intentionally trying to do harm. I'm just more questioning, you know, like we've talked about a lot on this podcast we recognize that there is this passive absorption of culture that existed before we were here, right? Before any of us were here. And we just kind of are born into whatever context we're born in. And the traditions are the traditions. And sometimes we don't really question them that much or we don't really stop to think about what are the implications of some of the things that we're doing. And it's all just like this inertia that just keeps carrying us forward. And yeah, it changes over time in subtle ways. But, you know, what are we doing? So... I've been doing some cursory reading about the psychological effects of this, and I've kind of, just to synthesize everything I've read, I actually think, and you're basically hitting it there, but I actually think this really almost becomes a cultural turning point for a child's life. And I don't think that's an exaggeration, but obviously this is in Christian families where Santa Claus is a thing. And because you, and this is one or, of the things... Or secular celebrators. There's plenty of those at this point. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, me. And then... Um, <laughs> I don't think this is an exaggeration to say this is like a real, uh, you keep uh, getting to this theory of how we're moving away from scientific thinking and then like don't appreciate science that much. And I think the Santa story is a beginning point of where that trail splits off from all the psychology I read, even the ones who think that Santa is a good thing 
almost every one of them said that at around seven or eight, your brain starts to change. And at around seven or eight is when kids start to question Santa Claus. There's this article in Popular Science. It's called Should Parents Lie to Kids About Santa Claus? We Asked the Experts. That's by Eleanor Cummins. And she brings on two experts, uh, Sidney Scheib and David Kyle Johnson. Uh, David Kyle Johnson doesn't agree with the Santa Claus that we should perpetuate it, that we should even necessarily tell it. But Cindy Scheib, she thinks we should tell it. But she also thinks that at this age, something happens. And this is back to Piaget, who we both read in education school. And Piaget, the Swiss psychologist, has these ideas about how the mind develops. There's a tipping point between the Tots who believe in Santa Claus and the unbelieving Bambinos. Uh, it seems to correlate to what Piaget calls concrete operational thinking, where a kid gets older and their thinking grows more organized uh, with their cognitive development. And uh, once happy with strings, they now want tight, logical connection between things. And my kids know about Santa Claus, and my kids believe in Santa Claus. I mean, I told the story. Uh, my wife has done most of the heavy lifting in perpetuating the myth. I'm happy with it. I think myths are an important thing to connect us as a culture. But what we need to do is at this seven or eight, we need, and they start to ask these questions. I'm not going to tell my son right there. I'm not going to be like, no, Santa Claus is false. Uh, go tell your four-year-old and we could stop this charade and move forward because I want my four-year-old to live through it a little bit more. But I like the idea that this is a moment where the kids are starting to think. Uh, Sidney Scheib even says it. She said they're thinking like little scientists. And he is in the same way that your daughter was because he's making these lists of why and why not. And he's trying to look at the evidence and he's still seven. So he wants the evidence to lead where he believes, which is fine. But then after that, if next year he says, Dad, I got to figure it out. Santa's not real. If I sat in front of him right then and said, no, but he is. And then I went out and I spent $300 on a Santa outfit and I showed up and I uh, knocked on the front door and waved at him just to make it think that Santa Claus was real. That's where it goes from like scientific critical thinking to dogmatic consumer. Right. And almost every psychologist I read pretty much agrees with that. Right. So to go back to the article you were just mentioning, David Johnson, he basically says the thing he's objecting to is promoting literal belief in Santa Claus. And his concern is that such myths discourage critical thinking. Um, and to go to what you were saying, when we say to kids, despite the evidence that they should believe anyway, that that's a dangerous precedent to set. And I tend to agree with that point of view, um, you know, to kind of take this into a maybe a little bit of a darker direction. You know, after the Newtown tragedy, school shooting all those years ago, and, you know, I, I was talking to the school psychologist at the school where I was working at the time. And, you know, my, my own kids were young at that time and in the early grades. And, you know, they were doing things like practicing lockdowns and all that stuff. And I wanted to have an understanding of how I should engage with the kids. And she told me something at that time that was some advice that I have kept close to heart since then, which was basically, if your kids are old enough to ask you questions about something, then they're curious and they deserve to have some honest answer about it. They're questioning because they're looking out at the world and they're seeing things and they're, and they're trying to make sense. And your job as a, well, as a parent, but as a teacher is to help them 
to do that in a productive way. Now, that doesn't mean you need to sit them down and tell them all the terrible details of a situation like this one. But at the same time, you know, you do need to own up to the fact that uh, a bad thing happened in a school. These are things that can happen sometimes. You know, you're safe. And she just kind of went through this whole thing with me. And I always think of it as, you know, I knew as a parent, eventually my kids are going to get older and they're going to ask me, you know, Santa, maybe that's not a thing that's as difficult to deal with as a tragic situation like the one I'm describing. But, you know, there's going to be conversations about things like sex and things like drugs. And, and, you know, if my own children can't feel confident that I'm going to give them reliable and truthful information, but they're still curious, well, where are they going to get that information? They're going to get it from their peers. They're going to get it from the internet. You know, I don't know where they're going to get it. And to me, one of the most important jobs we do as adults and as teachers and as parents is to help young people develop the critical skills they need to look out at the world and make judgments about reality that are going to benefit them and not encourage them to believe in things that are false or or magical thinking. This idea of magical thinking and this idea of lying because you want to protect something. So to bring it all the way back to Santa Claus, imagine if I was going around telling little kids everywhere, there's no such thing as Santa Claus. Like imagine the reaction that would get, right? Because what would I be doing? I'd be spoiling something, right? But what am I spoiling? In your language, you'd be spoiling their magic. And this would be the parents' language that they would echo back to you, that you're spoiling their magic. Like their innocence? So I think there's literally this idea that children have this imaginative, magical view of the world that is better than an adult view of the world. I think there's this romanticized view of the child. There's this beautiful, wonderful thing that can do all these amazing things. And then at a certain age, when we start to develop reason, rational thinking, we lose that magic and then there's nothing left anymore. But what's funny is like, you know, you shouldn't go up to kids and say that. But what's funny... I would never think of it. No. And what's funny is that the adults who are perpetuating this... That depresses me because as an adult, I don't quite get the feeling I used to get when I was 25 about certain things. Like when I was 25 and I would find something new and amazing, like I get this tingling through my body and I get all into it. But when I find something new to do as an adult, I still love it. I still see the beauty of it. Like even just Christmas, if you think about Christmas, no, there's no longer Santa Claus. There's no longer that magic, but there's wonder around me. And it's amazing. And I see my kids waking up and getting all excited. But it's not just about the presents they're getting. It's then my parents are going to come over at 10. We've developed these other traditions around it to me. And these are wondrous, awesome traditions. I get bagels and we have, uh, <laughs> this is maybe this is my Jewish side coming in. We have bagels and cream cheese and locks. And I love bagels and locks. And we eat that and we sit around by the fire. And to me, there's wonder there. We could even go scientific on this. There's the DNA that came from my father and mother that then went into me. And then there's my wife who brought in this other thing that created these two little beautiful, wondrous things that are running around and having such a great time with their new toys, perpetuating the species rather than the myth. And we're all just enjoying this. Now, that's wondrous. Like, there's so many cool things outside this world. And then, like, going into another Christmas myth. And then snowflakes start coming down. 
and snow is awesome and cool to watch beyond yeah. just like the magic of what you might say in like a white Christmas. Snowflakes are amazing. So to me, the adults who don't want the magic shut down are kind of depressed in their own lives and don't understand that there is wonder beyond this magic of childhood. Yeah, I think I get what you're saying. I do think there is, I don't know if I would characterize it as depression exactly. I think but, that's extreme, yes. So. But I think that there is just in general a lack of wonder about the world and this idea that a magical world is a better world than the world we actually live in. And I think if I hear you correctly, you're saying that like there's plenty of wonder around us without a literal belief in magic. Yes. Right. And we don't necessarily have to engage with fantasy as if it were fact in order to appreciate it either. Right. We can still have these stories and make them a meaningful part of what we're doing without perpetuating this idea that you should believe that as literal truth, because that's probably not productive either. And does it on some level inhibit either the individual or our collective ability to then at some point really tell the difference between reality and non-reality when it actually matters, right? Um, and so to me, I think we just need to be more thoughtful about it. And I'm not even suggesting getting rid of Santa Claus in any way or, or anything like that. I, I just really do question, again, this idea of perpetuating magical thinking and this idea that, like you were saying, children lead these magical lives that need to be protected in some way from the reality, the harsh reality of the real world. And this actually lingers into one of the things I hate the most about teaching, especially in high school, is listening to other educators talk about the real world as if the world the kids are now experiencing isn't the real world. And when you get onto the real world, all your fantasies of what you think it is, is just going to be shattered. And again, it's this idea, like you're saying, of it's a failure of adults to truly appreciate what the world actually is and the wonder of the world that we live in. And then we go from wanting to protect those kids when they're young to like, by the time they're teenagers, constantly telling them, well, you know, the harsh world is coming for you, man. You better get ready. And it's like, why do we have that weird view that like protect these innocent kids and then at a certain age be like, nope, reality. You better get ready. When you get out of high school, no one's going to listen to you. You're never going to get a job. Everything is harsh and competitive and the world sucks for the rest of your life because all you're going to do is work. You know, like it's so it's such a weird way to like look at the world and how we engage with kids. And maybe I'm like I'm totally going on a tangent here, but it just popped into my mind because it's so different from how we would treat them when they're little, right? So I think it's uh, used the word depression, but I'm going to replace that with the word a disappointment that a lot of people feel when they hit adulthood. So childhood, there's this idea of like being a child is having endless possibilities looking for. I think this is an adult idea. I don't think this is a childhood idea. I think kids just run around. And I think kids are just very much in the moment. And like, uh, you know, my seven-year-old starting to think about, oh, what I want to be when I grow up. And, and maybe we ask those questions a little bit too often. Uh, we love to ask questions like that. But even thinking about what he wants to be when he grows up has no sense of time or like reality or like what he's actually going to do. Right now, he wants to be a person who makes YouTube videos. Like that's going to change. I hope that changes. That's going to change and go through different shapes. But there's this idea in adulthood that like kids have this, you know, it's just the moment in your life where there is nothing weighing on you and you can move forward into all these different things. And I think looking back, like that's one of the reasons why we perpetuate the Santa Claus myth is because we want to keep that. We want to keep this idea that there can be a fat, 
white bearded man who magically gets to every household and fits down the chimney chute. Uh, and then we want to keep that going. And, and in order to do this, this is the funny part, because I think this heaps on to the disappointment that we already have in our adulthood life. So I'm not disappointed in my adulthood life. And I, I don't think that everybody is in general, but some people are just disappointed in this way. So to keep that going, this myth for the children so that they don't ever have to reach this awful part of their life that we've made it to, we go through all these miseries in order to make this kid jump up and down for 30 seconds or like a couple minutes i don't know it's this ultimate disappointment with adulthood has to do somewhat with this idea that this magic which is never real in the first place is gone and i think what we want people to start saying is that like even in adulthood without this magic there's still awesome stuff yeah well i mean i think it really comes back to the fundamental fact that it's like if you just can keep the perspective that existence at all is amazing And the fact that you get to be conscious on the earth for however many years you get to exist here is in and of itself possibly the most wondrous thing that you could ever have happen literally to you because without that one single thing, there is no conscious experience and we wouldn't be having a conversation. There's no Santa Claus. There's definitely no no Santa Santa Claus. I think the thing that's hard is like, it's hard to have this conversation. Obviously, we're making a lot of generalizations and I think there is a certain amount of stress that goes with the holiday time, right? And it's supposed to supposedly be a time of peace and love and magic. (laughs) And the holiday season is a time when theoretically it's supposed to be special and different. And, and the implication is that it's somehow better than other times of the year. Right. And I've actually experienced this many times. Like I started this whole thing by saying, I love Christmas. The period of time from Thanksgiving to New Year's is probably my favorite time of the whole year. You know, like I love the fall leading into into the holidays, but I love the holiday season. I have all my little traditions. I have my holiday music playlist on Thanksgiving night. We listen to the Christmas music for the first time and I love all that stuff, but I do see this side where people are stressed. They don't know if they bought enough things. They don't know if they got the right things. And it becomes this, I got got to cook the meal and I got to do all this stuff. And instead of it being this like joyous experience, it can turn into a stressful time. And it's a tough time of the year for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. And so I don't even know if I'm getting to the exact thing that you were kind of intimating, but I think to try to take it all the way back to little kids, if we're disappointed when we become adults, because the world isn't what we thought that it was going to be. Well, doesn't that in some way imply that the adults that raised us didn't get us ready for the reality that we were going to face in a way that was, and I'm not, and again, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we have to sit down and get rid of all stories and tell kids like exactly what the world is as we see it from the moment they're born. But it seems to me that we could handle it in a way that potentially would be a little more productive in terms of helping kids develop the sensibilities and the thinking skills and the just perspective that they need in order to move through youth and into adolescence and young adulthood and adulthood eventually without this crushing sense of disappointment that comes with 
oh, the world just isn't this magical place that I thought that it was. And it really, this is, all, this is all it is. It's just, I woke up today and you know what? It's very similar to yesterday. And is this all it's ever going to be? This isn't what I was promised in the stories. I, I think a big part goes back to that choice when it happens. Uh, and like what psychologists say about what we do in that moment where we decide to go towards critical thinking or towards this dogmatic idea. And then to me, what became very interesting in talking about this and discussing this and reading a little bit more about Santa Claus is that the myth that we are perpetuating is actually way less interesting to me than the real history of this guy who is Santa Claus, (laughs) because we thought this guy was Santa Claus for like forever and was just always around. So does he live forever? Is he immortal? That's one of the questions that just popped in my head. But there's actually like a whole history of how this Santa Claus figure came into being. And... So when I discovered this history, I thought it was very cool. I think it would destroy some people's larger imaginations of what this is. But he dates back to 280 AD, and he's based on this real saint named St. Nicholas in Greece. And there's no real, there's like a couple of stories about him that connect to gift giving, but I think he becomes the patron saint of children and also several other things. But that's one of the things why he's kind of connected to Santa Claus. And there's like a story or two where he helps out these prostitutes or there's a story where he raises three dead children. It brings them back to life, raises them from the dead. So this is who Santa Claus is based on. And then there's like this growing myth about him. Apparently in the Middle Ages, like into the Renaissance, 1200 to 1500s, where he starts to spread through Europe and they celebrate him on December 6th. And then eventually the Protestant Reformation kind of knocks out this idea. All right, saints aren't important anymore. And we move forward, but they need somebody to replace the saint for the holiday because the holiday has become a tradition, which is fine. And then so if some cultures have baby Jesus start to deliver presents for a while. So this St. Nicholas actually had some connection to helping children behave better. So you don't want to say that baby Jesus is going to punish you and not bring you presents. So that's where things like Krampus uh, and these like not necessarily evil, but kind of mischievous, essentially like a Robin to uh, baby Jesus's Santa Batman um, side characters come in and they're the ones who watch the children and make sure they're behaving and then it doesn't really hit santa claus the chubby uh, red-cheeked man until it comes to america and it's twas the night before christmas the famous poem is actually one of the beginnings of what we know of as santa today and then there's this guy who does a cartoon of him and that's like around the 1850s when like it really becomes the santa that we know of today originally published anonymously on december 23rd 1823 The poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore, changed Santa from a figure who was, until that time, traditionally depicted as a thinner, less jolly, horse-riding disciplinarian, a combination of mythologies about the British Father Christmas, the Dutch Sinterklaas, and the 4th century bishop, St. Nicholas, into the cheerfully chubby, magical gift-giver, complete with his eight reindeer, with whom we are now well acquainted. Moore claimed authorship of the poem, which is popularly known today as Twas the Night Before Christmas, in 1836. But this claim is now in question, and many believe the author was actually the writer Henry Livingston. Using imagery from the poem, the famous political cartoonist Thomas Nast is credited with creating the first illustrations of Santa as we know him today. In total, 33 of Nast's Santa drawings were published in Harper's Weekly from 1863 to 1886, In addition to his Santa contributions, Nast's drawings of Uncle Sam, the Republican Party elephant, and the Democratic Party donkey, among others, are widely credited as forming the basis of popular depictions used today. For more information, 
including the complete text of the poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas. See the links in the show notes. It's really interesting to me. That is really interesting because I've talked to you before about this idea that I call the compression of history, which is basically that we're born whenever we're born, and it feels like everything that ever happened before we were born, like it happened, but the sequence of events like somehow isn't really that important or anything because whatever it led up to and however the world ended up being at the time we showed up in it, it seems like so many of the things that we do, it must have just been always like that. To me, and I didn't read as much about the history of Christmas and Santa Claus as you did, but like even this idea that Christmas was this huge holiday, I never really questioned that. It was always like this really important thing, but apparently it wasn't even really that important of a holiday. And then in America in the last you know 200 years, it, it evolved into the version of Christmas specifically that we know today. And, you know, you brought up Twas the Night Before Christmas, which is the famous poem where Twas the Night Before Christmas and all through the house on Dasher, on Dancer. We all know like little lines from it, right? And I remember probably, I don't know, 15 years ago at this point, before I had any kids, before any of us, anybody I know had kids, which is why I was probably up on New Year's Eve. Um, We were playing Trivial Pursuit because, you know, that's just, that's the way I roll on New Year's Eve. By the time I became an adult, we were playing Trivial Pursuit. And I remember one of the questions was like, how many reindeer does Santa have? And the guy who got it, my friend Pete, you know, he went through like, you know, blah, 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 and Rudolph. And and he said, I think nine. And I think that the Trivial Pursuit card said there was only eight. And, you know, we, we got in this big like, no way, there's this many. And that was like the first time I looked up the history of the reindeer. And it's traced back to this poem, right? And Rudolph was actually an invention like sometime in the mid 30s in the 30s 30s and 40s it was really like a department store that was either selling toys or books and they invented this character and it like just got added in and then it made the rankin bass claymation rudolph movie with rudolph where his nose makes that really amazing noise every time it glows (laughs) which always makes me laugh and uh and rudolph just became like the leader of the reindeer somehow i mean like literally last night i'm downstairs in the basement playing music with joey and we're playing you know run rudolph run the chuck berry you know song and uh you just assume i just always assume that like, well, Rudolph is as much a part of Christmas as Santa is as much a part of Christmas. And it must have just throughout the past always been this way. And it's weird because we unquestioningly perpetuate this mythology and it's fine, but it's not as sacrosanct as we believe that it is, right? It's not as unchanging as we believe it to be. And if it could change and evolve in the past, it can change and evolve going forward without probably much negative effect. And so if we wanted to be a little more careful about the way we treat these things, it's not like out of the realm of possibility, nor is it like some kind of sacrilegious thing to be like, well, we're going to alter the Santa myth a little bit because, and, and, I, and again, this kind of gets back to that bigger BI question that we always ask about, can we really actually direct culture in any meaningful way? Like I, I certainly as individuals, we're almost powerless to do it, but within my own house, <laughs> I could probably pull something off. Yeah, because if you're looking into this history, and this, I probably would have looked at this very cynically if I had looked in this history like even five, ten years ago. But it is very much connected to our consumerist society. It's very much connected to the free market and stores and how to sell things. So I think it's around 1880 that the guy first creates the cartoon that is the Santa Claus that we know today. And then Macy's is already in the 1850s, I believe, is starting to do things with Santa Claus and Christmas's advertising. And then it keeps rolling and changing. And then these same Christmas movies we grew up with were Christmas movies that were created. 
it 30 to 40 years before we grew up. Right. And uh, to me, they're still the best Christmas movies, maybe because myself, I don't even want this tradition to evolve. So it's heavily connected to this consumer culture. And I think how I'd like my children to view this is I don't want them to be the cynical, you know, consumerism sucks because I worked in a bookstore in California for a while and we would do like maybe 500 to a thousand dollar sales on your average day. But then in the weeks heading up to Christmas, we would do like $5,000 a day and we stayed open on Christmas Eve on purpose. And we made, I remember, cause I remember doing the sales, we made $10,000 just on Christmas Eve. Like, we, uh, we didn't make it. We sold $10,000 worth of books. So that day meant a lot to that little independent bookstore staying open. So Christmas is a big part of, like, how we run our, our economy. economy. Yeah. yeah. But what I'd like for my children to realize is that even as you're making this decision and now you're starting to recognize that Santa is not real, this is the type of thinking that we build when you're younger so that when you're older and you are in this consumer world, and it's awesome to be in this consumer world and get all these things we get in these consumer worlds, you don't just go out there and buy things because it looks like it connects to the magic of Santa. You decide which way you want to go and you become somewhat of a critical thinker when you engage in that larger adult world where decisions are important. And I don't think it's underselling this. It's funny because as I've been looking more into the sin idea, which started as your idea, I've been buying more into your thesis about it, I think, than even you have, because I think it's just a big turning point. And I want my kids to head into the critical thinking examination of the world where you can be a, a smart consumer and enjoy Christmas at the same time, as opposed to a dogmatic acceptance. And I'm going to spend a thousand dollars no matter what I end up buying by the end of this holiday season. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think that the ideas without getting too much into like capitalism as a way to run our, you know, is it the best economic model or, or consumerism, maybe I should say, and the things that go along with that. I, I think it is a good opportunity though, to say, you know, who doesn't love getting a gift? Honestly, I love somebody gets me a gift and I love getting people gifts. I've always enjoyed at Christmas time when you know, you really know another person and you have that perfect thing and you want to give it to them. It's an awesome feeling when you do that. And like, it doesn't need to be Christmas for you to give gifts. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, you gave me a small gift, right? As a token of appreciation. And I really appreciated that. And I, I tried to do that for other people too. And I think that that idea of giving and receiving is a really meaningful thing because I think as human beings and like the way our social structures are set up, this idea of building relationships is really important, right? And I think that giving a thing because you want to give it of your own free will, because you know somebody well and you want to do that, and, and then getting something from the people that you have relationships with that is meaningful to you because not necessarily because you're getting something, but because they know you well enough to give you something that you're going to appreciate. Like, I think there's a lot of value in that kind of stuff. I think it builds relationships. I think it's great. I think there are productive ways that we could talk about this idea without emphasizing necessarily the commercialism or the consumerism of it, but this idea of being together and building relationships and celebrating family and friends and giving and receiving. And I like a lot of that stuff. And I think if we handle it well, you know, and I don't want to pretend like I know the right way to do all this stuff. And, you know, I, I do what I think is best. And I, I really believe that that's what most people are doing. But I think like culturally, the messages we get and what's happening, you know, unconsciously in our brains doesn't always align in the best way for us to actually maximize the potential of a season like that and the experiences we could be having around it. 
I think you just hit on like the basic wonder that I was kind of trying to get to before uh, of what Christmas is for me as an adult. Sitting around and being around the people I love and like just getting that warm feeling and being able to take a little bit of a break and just sit there and embrace all of that. Um, So this morning I'm cooking pancakes for my kids and my four-year-old comes up to me and he says, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? And I just thought it was a cool moment. And then all of it coming together, like the idea of gathering and being with friends. So we've been doing Christmas Eve at your house for 10 plus years, I would say. And it's this awesome tradition that you started when my wife and I moved back from California. We lived around the corner and you decided to invite us over to your house and come to this dinner that you cook every year. That night is one of my favorite nights of the year. You know, I'll bring over some special beer or something to drink that night. I enjoy talking to your younger brother because he's experiencing all these things and it's fun to see where he is in a new place and we always get into some kind of uh, heated in a good way kind of discussion. And my wife sits down with your mother and they have a conversation and my kids are running around playing with your kids' old toys. Your kids who don't generally like younger kids kind of can put up with my kids just a little bit. It's kind of just this like moment of two guys who've been very close with each other since they were 18. Having the holiday excuse to just like, let's be family in this moment and share together. Uh, it's been an awesome tradition. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, you know, we're recording this now in the uh, in the time of COVID, and it's something that's not going to happen for us this year. And it's probably, of all the things, you know, as I get closer to it, the thing that I'm probably going to miss the most. I mean, my tradition that day always is, you know, I get up. And, and so just a, the little bit of uh, background on it is, you know, like I mentioned, I was raised Catholic, but the religious aspect of Christmas was never really a big part of it. The one piece of it that I remember that I think had something to do with uh, the religious side of it, and then maybe this was also like the Italian-American piece of it too, because we were also culturally kind of raised that way as well, was on Christmas Eve, we never ate meat. So we'd always have like linguine with shrimp or something like that. And, you know, I got interested in that whole idea of the Feast of the Seven Fishes, which is like an Italian uh, tradition. And that's kind of what I wanted to do. And so I started doing all this research, except I made it very multicultural. You know, it'd be like sushi and some soup from Brazil or, you know, a whole bunch of different things. And we'd make all these different dishes. And for me that morning, you know, like my dad comes over at like 6 a.m. We go out to the store, we buy fish, we come back, we cook all day long. He goes home. He comes back with my mom. You guys come over, you know, Doug comes over. We talked about it in your philosophy episode, actually. That was when Doug, uh, the remember book. the yeah. the, uh, the good old uh, Thinking Fast and Slow book that, you know, that was on Christmas Eve. I believe the first time I ever heard you actually use the term beautiful illusion, like in my mind, I think it was one of those Christmas Eves, like two Christmas Eves ago, maybe. Um, We had a conversation that I had just listened to the two cultures episode. I'm almost positive of the context podcast. And we were discussing that. And I was talking about my whole thing about, uh, you know, science and humanities and the schism and how, you know, and and anyway, we had a whole episode on that. So I don't need to go into it. But um, that happened on that Christmas Eve. And like, it's such a great tradition. And the thing that's cool about it is like, we keep it kind of the same, but we also change it a little bit every year, right? So it's like this idea that it's a little bit similar, but it also can change as time goes by. And I don't know if uh, we talk about Santa at all on that, on that night, but to get back to your point, there's so much potential to use these holiday times as focal points for 
being appreciative and building the relationships with the people you love. And I think that in some ways, potentially making it about this mythical person, I guess he's a person. Is he a person? He's a God. <laughs> he's a man. I, I don't know. He's magic. Uh, he could be anything. Uh, you know, showing up and delivering the gifts and all that. Like to me, I want you to know that the gifts came from me. And I want to know that the gifts came from you. I don't have any relationship to Santa Claus. Like, I don't know, you know, and I get it as a story, but I want to engage with it as a story, as something that's not real, that we could have a good time with. I don't want to be going through elaborate diversions in order to keep this thing going for everybody to defend some kind of magical, innocent childhood that everybody's supposed to have, that at some point, you know, we just got to let them hang on to it as long as we can, because we all know the secret of adults is that that it's just not real and that bubble's going to burst for them. And so let's let them believe it as long as they possibly can. And what's the ultimate goal that like maybe one day, like all of us could just believe it forever and we never experience reality. We just live in this perpetual childhood where we are protected from the quote real world and we never have to face any of it. Like maybe I'm really going out on a limb here, but I do think in some small way, stories like that and pretending that they're real and lying on purpose in order to defend this idea, it has some impact on the way we perceive the real world and the way kids grow up and the way they perceive the world around them and what adults are willing to say or not say. And the more I've been thinking about this, is the more I've been thinking about just like unconscious absorption versus involvement in the process. One of the child development experts that I read, she had this idea, like when the kids find out that Santa isn't real, there is the potential that some of them might feel sad. So how do you make them feel better about this transition from fantasy into reality? And I don't agree with her article as a whole, the way she presents it, but I really love the idea she had at the end because her idea was to involve them in the process where they get to play Santa Claus alongside you. Maybe you deliver presents to your younger siblings. Maybe you deliver presents to people in need. But the idea that you also become part in this creation and revising of the myth. So rather than just continuing to absorb the myth, you get to be the creator. I, I read a book once about this, about how we become too sedentary and we just constantly bring things in. And I think Santa Claus is a perfect example. That's what I've been keep thinking in my head. And to turn your kids into the critical and creative person as they start to realize, oh, Santa isn't real. Uh, why don't we make our own poem about this Santa that you could say to your younger brother? Uh, why don't we write a new, uh, oh, the, this uh, cartoon's been around since the 50s. Why don't you and I write like a new cartoon story? So let's make a new reindeer. Yeah. Let's add a new reindeer into the mix. That Creation. would really screw some people up. Creation over consumption. Yeah. Well, Chuck Berry did that because he mentions Randolph in uh, Run, Rudolph, Run. Joey and I laugh about it every single time we play it. Who is Randolph? Is that another reindeer? Who invented that one? Uh, so what are you going to do this year? I don't even know. I haven't even thought about it. Oh, well, you have to send me your cod spread recipe because <laughs> my, uh, my wife is, uh, really wants to make the cod spread. Um, probably going to try and figure out some kind of way to outdoor go say hi to my parents. And then I've already thought about it. I'm going to have a week and a half with my kids just in the house, so I'm going to need to come up with some kind of adventurous activities for us to do so that we don't just sit there yeah. and watch Christmas movies a hundred times. Over You're going to need again. a way to make sure that they're good. What are you going to use as a threat? <laughs> I'm going to use Darren. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I think, uh, yeah, that, uh, that sums it up. So, so is Santa going to be part of your Christmas? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my wife's going to have Santa. I'd, I, again, I'd, I won't be involved in it. Because, yeah, we're going to let my four-year-old have a couple more years before. Uh, I think Artie will enjoy ruining it for him when it gets to that point. I think so. Yeah. yeah that's mm-hmm. funny. I think that we'll have a good time at my house with all the stories. You know, we always do. And I think my kids are in, in a place now where they have fun with it. Engaging with it, knowing full well that it's not real. And it's it's kind of like that uh, that burden is off of me at this point, and, and I like it. So, uh you know, it's a hard thing. I, I empathize with all parents trying to wrestle with this one way or the other. And, you know, ultimately, there probably isn't a right way to do it. I, I just think, as usual, you know, what we really are looking at is let's just be a little more thoughtful about what we're doing and try to understand, you know, is there maybe some tweaks we can make that take a great thing and maybe make it a little bit better, right? Yeah. Which layers yeah. do I want to leave on and which layers can I let shed off? Yeah, very good. Well, happy Christmas to all, and and to to all all a good good night. night. So right now we have a very special guest, actually the first ever guest on the Beautiful Illusions podcast, uh, Leah Vigliotti. Welcome to Beautiful Illusions. Hi. (laughs) So thank you for being here. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Leah and I'm 14 years old and I'm in eighth grade. Okay, so 14 years old. So you've been through a couple of Christmases at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So give me a little bit of your, uh, your thoughts about Santa Claus in general. You know, what do you think about Santa Claus stories? How has Santa Claus been a part of your Christmas experience growing up in this house? I don't dislike Santa Claus, but I also don't have any, like, love for Santa Claus. Like, I think it's fun to, you know, have, like, the stories and stuff. But I also think it's important to know that he's not, like, an actual, like, real. Because, like, well, sometimes on Christmas Eve, on Google, they have the Santa tracker. And we'll pull it up and be like, oh, he's here now. But, like, we know it's not real. It's just random computer generated. And... We always had, like, the presents under the tree and stuff, and, like, we put the cookies out by the fire, and, like, we would come downstairs and they'd be eaten. But I don't think that I ever believed in Santa. Really? Like, never? No, I don't think I ever did. So in your whole memory of Christmas, you never thought Santa was real? No, I think it was more me pretending that I thought Santa was real because I thought that you wanted me to think that Santa was real. So I always was like, oh, yeah, Santa's coming. But I don't think I ever thought that he was a real So as far back as you can remember, you were always skeptical. Yeah. Okay. So do you think that had anything to do with the way, like, your mother and I presented it to you? Or how do you feel about that? Well, you, you never, like, insisted that he was real. It was more like... I think you said it like once, so like, oh, Santa comes and gives you presents, but then I don't think we ever really said it again. So it was kind of just like I never really believed it. And also, I think that one night I heard you going downstairs. You heard me going downstairs? Yeah. To do what? Like put presents out or something? Yeah. That's what you thought? Huh. So what about the cookies and all that stuff? You didn't? No. That was just for fun? I, yeah, I knew that you were eating them. <laughs> How do you know it was me? Uh, I think you said it once, one morning. So in your view, did you not knowing that Santa was real, 
did that make it any less exciting for you, Christmas? Or no. like, did it affect you in any way? No, it didn't make it less exciting. I was still excited every Christmas Eve. Um, and I think it was still fun. Like, I just never really believed he was real. And I think, but I still like had fun with like the stories of Santa and like. All right. So what convinced you, you know, early on, like, why did you think maybe Santa wasn't real? I mean, and what, what about like your experience at school or with like other kids and stuff like that? Like what kinds of things did, did they say? Uh, I think that a lot of the kids in class for a little bit, like I think up until like second grade, most of them thought Santa was real. But then by third grade, they were, they would around Christmas, they would go around telling other kids that Santa wasn't real. They would just like, because it was like a thing that like if you if a kid thought Santa was real, they would go over and be like, no, he's not real. And they huh. would. So seven, eight year old school time, you know, you were kind of ridiculed if you still <laughs> believed in Santa at that yeah. point or people wanted to spoil for you. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so what do you think in general just about the concept of Santa in terms of adults how they should treat it with their kids. Like, should adults tell kids that Santa is real? And should they pretend that he's real? Or how do you think adults should handle it? I don't think that they should, like, convince kids that it's a real thing and make them think it's a real thing. But I think there's nothing wrong with having fun with the stories and, like, being able to put the presents under the tree and the cookies out. Because that's fun. It's fun to do. But I don't think you should be telling kids that, Santa is real. Huh. So if kids are asking, is Santa real, how would you respond? Uh, I would probably tell them that he's not. You would tell them that he's not? Do you remember ever asking me or mom? No, but I think one year you pulled me and Joey aside and you were like, Santa isn't real. It's, it's you who's putting the presents under the tree. And I don't think mom told us, but I think you did. I think you pulled us aside one year and you told us that Santa wasn't real. Huh. Because I, I remember saying things like, I don't have any evidence that he is real. I, I remember using that line a couple of times. Yeah. And I, I also remember one time Joey trying to collect some evidence. And I also remember, I, I was curious if you remember this. I remember one time that I wrote the Santa note. I only ever did this one time, um, and I left it by the cookie plate. And I remember when you came down and you read the note, and you went right over to the whiteboard on the refrigerator, and you compared the handwriting. Do you remember that? I think I do remember <laughs> that. So you were, you were on to it? Yeah. So in general, do you think that adults telling children – stories that aren't real and trying to convince them that they are or just lying in general, do you think that might have any negative effect or do you think it can just be done in a way that's not going to have any long-term harms? I mean, if you're lying to them when they're like old enough to have opinions and stuff and you're telling them these things, then they're going to start. If they're like toddlers that like don't form, then I guess if it's just for fun, then but you should tell them eventually that it's not real. Like by the time they're like, six years old, they should know that Santa isn't real because I feel like by that time they start forming views on the world. And if one of their opinions is that Santa is real and they start thinking that, then I feel like it's harder to tell them that it's not. Huh. So why do you think a belief in something like Santa as you get older is problematic? Because it's not 
it's not true and it feel it's like you're believing in something that's completely unrealistic and like flying reindeer <laughs> a guy getting jumping into your chimney like at, on one night a year like it you're you sh- I, I don't know yeah just... so at some point you think that uh it's important to recognize the difference between fiction and nonfiction. yeah and, and be able to tell the difference between the two. And so what, if I'm hearing you, you're saying you could still have fun with the story mm-hmm. even once you know it's not real. Yeah. And if kids are old enough to ask, then yeah, you, you, should, sh- you, you should, should tell them the truth. You should tell them the truth. All right. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Any, any last thoughts about uh, Christmas, Santa Claus, anything you want to get off your mind? No, not really. No? Well, thank you very much for... Uh, doing this i appreciate it um and merry christmas merry christmas thank you for listening to beautiful illusions we sincerely hope you enjoyed the conversation and more importantly that it made you think about something in a new way if you like what you heard be sure to subscribe and more importantly share with your friends the beautiful illusions theme was written performed and recorded by Darren Vigliotti and Joseph Vigliotti. For a complete set of show notes with links to almost everything we discuss or reference, corrections and elaborations, as well as other miscellaneous bits and pieces, please visit our website, beautifulillusions.org. 